Hey, my name's Jamie Poisson, and I'm the host of Frontburner. It's the CBC's daily news podcast. And every day we're discussing the big events and fault lines shaping Canada and the world. Politics, economics, social movements, you name it. Sometimes we even talk about really fun stuff like the enduring relevance of Lord of the Rings. You can hear Frontburner on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Ian Hanamancy. Welcome to Checkup's Ask Me Anything podcast. And today you're about to hear our AMA about medical care for transgender youth. Wanted to make sure that we, we struck the right balance so that kids are not making irreversible decisions. I guess I just am concerned. These surgeries are very complicated. In the past year with uh, therapy, hormone treatment, he is now finally at a point of working part-time, hoping to go back to school. These decisions are made in collaboration with parents, with families, based on best practice, based on best evidence. This week, Alberta Premier Daniel Smith announced a series of policy changes affecting transgender and non-binary youth. Part of the proposal includes imposing age restrictions for puberty blockers, hormone therapies, and access to surgery. The legislation won't be formally introduced until the fall of 2024, but today we wanted to take a step back from the politics and focus on the health issues for transgender youth and their parents across the country. Gender-affirming healthcare is endorsed by medical associations, including the Canadian Pediatric Society and the Canadian Psychological Association. So we want to dig into how it actually works. Dr. Daniel Metzger is a pediatric endocrinologist at BC Children's Hospital, where he treats, among others, transgender patients. He was also the co-investigator of a major study called Trans Youth Can, which looked at medical outcomes for this population and was funded by the Canadian Institutes of Health Research. He answered your questions about gender-affirming care, and here are a few highlights from the show. Dr. Metzger, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Good afternoon. It's my pleasure to be here. The Canadian Pediatric Society and the Alberta Medical Association have been among the critics urging the province of Alberta to, to step back from their plans, to change their plans. Uh, you aren't here as a spokesperson for, because you're not, uh, for the Canadian Pediatric Society, but you've written a position paper for that organization on gender-affirming care. What are the concerns being raised about the Alberta proposal, specifically around gender-affirming treatments? So gender-affirming care really just means meeting the child where they are, finding out what they're thinking, how they're feeling about their gender, and and what sort of concerns that might be raising. It also means meeting with families and, and parents and finding out how things are working for them. Uh, we have international guidelines from the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, um, and our position statement for the Canadian Pediatric Society was really just how uh, does one put this into practical uh, application for pediatrics, uh, pediatricians and for family physicians in Canada? And um, much of what we do has been um, studied now. We've, in Canada, been treating kids medically for 26 years. Our, our clinic in Vancouver was the first to treat kids, and we've treated quite a few. They're now clinics across Canada. And we all follow the same guidelines. We all, um, you know, read the same literature. We all 
follow with interest the the things we need to know and the things we need to learn. Um, and I think um, I think these are sorts of medical decisions that should be made in in the context of what's good medical care, and of course, including the patients and their families. Premier Danielle Smith of Alberta said this week that she she supports trans adults who want to transition, but she doesn't believe children should be making those decisions. And Dr. Metzger, I think that probably has a lot of resonance with a lot of people. What would you say to that? I think we need to give Canadian children more credit. Like, like I think if I were to take 10 people off the street who are transgender and say, are you a guy or a woman? They would be able to tell you that pretty easily. And I would say, well, when did you know that? They'd be like, as long as I can remember. So, so the, the, you know, cisgender people know their gender forever. Nobody questions that. But trans kids have to prove over and over, trans adults have to prove over and over that they know what their gender is. But most of us have had a gender since forever, and it hasn't wavered very much. Uh, our, how we express it might have changed. So I think, I think kids do know their gender. I think uh, it does sometimes uh, lead to such levels of concern and dysphoria that they need help with that. Some kids are perfectly fine changing their name, changing their their haircut, changing their clothing. Some kids need more help than that. But I think uh, waiting till someone is 18 is is missing the boat. You know, Dr. Metzger, there are a lot of people, and I'm sure a lot of those are among our listeners now, who have never had any direct contact with anybody uh, who, who had 11 or 12 or 13 years old has talked about gender affirming care. So all of a sudden, you know, they're hearing all of these stories um, and, and they just, you know, and, and, and one of the things I hear some people say is, what about if a kid's just going through a phase? What about if, if, you know, they, 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 they say they want something at 11 or 12, um, that it turns out when they get through this phase, they're not going to want anymore. And here we have doctors going ahead and changing that kid's gender, um, without the parents knowing. So there's a lot there to unpack, but I'm sure you've heard versions of, of that kind of comment before. What would you say? Well, I think firstly, uh, trans people have been around forever. Uh, it's not it's not something that came about yesterday. Uh, the Canadian census showed that one in three hundred uh, Canadians consider themselves to be transgender, non-binary. If you look at youth in the sort of nineteen to twenty-five age group, that's one in one hundred and twenty-five kids. Uh, so there's not just a, a a couple of kids. I think uh, kids don't get slapped onto hormones or blockers without their parents' notice. Kids don't uh, just go into a doctor and get hormones uh, because that's what the doctor wants. We have a very uh, clear process that kids are uh, first meet with some sort of a mental health professional who um, is well versed in what um, in the in normal neuropsychological developmental uh, psychosexual developmental stages of, of adolescence, and so they know what what sort of the normal range is for 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 kids, and and those. Uh, mental health professionals um, assess kids to find out, well, maybe they're just confused about their sexuality. Well, it's not that. Maybe they had an unfortunate experience and they're reacting in a funny way. Not that. So they they go through the whole list of things that this could be. But in fact, most of the kids that present as trans are trans. They've often known it for many years and and they've often already sort of socially transitioned themselves anyway. It's our job to keep those people, those kids in a place of comfort and a place of safety and to help them in in ways that for, with using the tools that we have. Um, nobody just goes and goes to a doctor's office and gets a shot the first time. Nobody goes and gets uh, surgeries. 
uh, without uh, without some sort of uh, preparation. And 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 firstly, we're not even doing surgeries in children in most places in Canada. That's almost always a an eighteen or above thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's just a lot of disinformation out there, and part of the reason we're here today is just to dispel some of that information. One hundred percent, and that's why I'm so thankful that you have uh, agreed not only to be part of the program, but to take calls from people and uh, have their questions here on this. Ask me anything, uh, Dr. Metzger. Let's start with a question that was texted to us from Terry Anderson, who's in Edmonton. Uh, Terry asks, "Can an adolescent take puberty blockers for two to three years with no long-term effects?" I've heard different answers. What's the empirical evidence? So just to, you know, puberty blockers are are sort of out there as as being uh, re- completely reversible medications, which is not 100% true. Uh, they are 100% true in the terms of if you start a pop puberty blocker, the puberty turns off. If you stop the puberty blocker, the, the puberty turns back on. Puberty blockers have been around now for 35 years, and so we we know that that part of what puberty blockers does is irreversible. But when you turn puberty off or puberty turns itself off because you're sick, um, a lot of the processes that that need to happen during puberty stop. So brain development stops in certain ways. Bone development, which is one of our biggest concerns, stops. And so we don't want kids on blockers for long periods of time so that they get so far behind, particularly like in their bone development, that it makes it difficult to catch up down the road. And so we do want... um, kids to um, be able to formulate a plan within a couple of years, given their age, given their level of maturity, given their their own sort of circumstances around their own puberty, so that they're not on these medications forever without either stopping them, moving forward with their original puberty, or moving forward with a puberty that aligns with how how they identify. Uh, Because we want to get the bones accumulating calcium again. We want to get the brain rewiring in the way that it's meant to rewire for for that child's um, gender identity. Dr. Metzger, let me ask you about why are you so enthusiastic about providing gender-affirming care to young people? My goodness, I'm a pediatrician. I should be enthusiastic about looking after my patients. Um, I don't think anybody wants a doctor that's glum. Um, (laughs) I'm enthusiastic about looking after my kids with diabetes. I'm at Enthusiastic and looking after my kids with delayed puberty. That's my job to be enthusiastic. Yeah. Um, it's very rewarding to 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 do gender care in kids. Um a lot of times I'm telling kids, you know what, you've got diabetes, you're gonna take insulin for the rest of your life. Sorry, we'll help you with that. But when you meet a trans kid and you can offer them a chance to have their body look closer to the way they feel it should look, and they're just happy all the time. Nothing better than that. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer health topics in a smart and sometimes counterintuitive way you won't hear anywhere else. Like, what's the least amount of exercise I can do to get the benefits? Which psychedelics can improve my mental health? And how can I check for cancer if I don't have a family doctor? Top experts help me bring you what you need to know in plain language in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. And and let me ask you directly the question, 
What about a profit motive here? Whether it's mm-hmm. pharmaceutical companies, uh, you know, channeling money to you, your hospital, or the university, or or anything else. You know, a cruise where you get to uh, be, you know, they take you down there and they teach you about uh, dealing with uh, gender affirming uh, surgeries or or treatments. I guess for youth, is there anything at all that could be interpreted as a money motive for your enthusiasm? So, so like, really, we're deal- dealing with one company, the company that makes uh, the blocker that we use in Canada. No, I don't even know our rep. I don't even know how to find our rep. Our, probably our nurses do. Um, you know, every university, ha- any kind of research or anything, the, the university has very strict controls over ethics and ethics and research. And when, you know, I can't just go do a research project uh, without without reams of paperwork, in, in including any any sort of drug company money that might be involved. And and without signing off lots and lots of paper, I don't do research for partly for that reason. Um, but but there, you know, every university has some oversight into how university hospital uh, people interact with industry. Um, do I go on cruises from the blocker companies? No, I don't. <laughs> Wouldn't. Yeah. Uh, I they have not heard, and I'm not going to say yes if they do. Yeah. It's so good to have you uh, answering these questions. People can text us, which is what Jane Keeler did. She's in Ottawa. And Dr. Metzger hears her question via text. Can you help me understand the difference of a need for gender-affirming surgery versus a person who simply hates their body, bracket body dysphoria? Oh, they probably mean dysmorphia. So that is a, that I'm not a psychiatrist, but I, I feel like I know what she's getting at. So um, some people have a condition would just say that I cannot stand my shoulders. My shoulders are terrible. Uh, Every time I look at my shoulders, they just make me cringe. Um, That's uh, that's um, that would be people, for instance, who get a lot of plastic surgeries because they never feel their face is correct. That's body dysmorphia, which, um, again, not a psychiatrist, but that means that that you have um, psychological problem with a part of your body. That is different than gender dysphoria, where you think my entire body does not match what my brain is telling me. And a big part of the mental health assessment that people uh, go through looking for trans, uh, looking for gender care is around that exact question. Is this, is this like a body dysmorphia thing? Is this a sort of a form of eating disorder or is this really gender dysphoria. So um, uh, this is why we have mental health experts to do exactly this. And I've sat in on joint rounds and I've heard, you know, cases being discussed where I'm like, this is very hard to tell apart. Uh, Let's go to Anne Robertson, who is in Ontario. Hi, Anne, are you on the line? Yes, I am. Um, And what's your question for Dr. Metzger? Okay, so my question is, my daughter started her periods when she was 11, which is last year, and she's now 12 years old. She doesn't want them. Um, she's not sure if she's non-binary. She thinks she might be, but she wants to have puberty blockers to stop that. <laughs> um, would that be a possibility? Okay, and let's uh, bring in Dr. Metzger. Obviously, you can't uh, diagnose somebody from afar like that, but but what are some of the issues that, that are raised there by Anne, Dr. Metzger? This is actually a question we get quite a bit. And again, I don't want to go into the specifics of your 
your child, but the average cisgender girl who is getting their period is nearly developed, nearly completely done developing, meaning like the breast development is probably getting close to the end. So at this point, if, if, you're, if your child were to go just on puberty blockers, their estrogen level would be up here, it would go down, they would go through menopause, and we, we would get rid of the periods, but we would also not get rid of all of the other changes that have already happened. There are many simpler ways of turning uh, periods off for, for um, cisgender girls who have very painful periods, for non-binary and trans uh, kids who, who want to get rid of their periods, continuous birth control, Depo Provera, an intrauterine device, um, patches, implants. There's many um, simpler ways of getting rid of periods for 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 um, assigned females whose body development is pretty far along already. Okay, I just think that she she'll, she's just started using the term non-binary, but she's yeah. happy. She says to me that she's happy being a girl. She just doesn't want to grow breasts. Or men's yes. she doesn't want. I guess there's a way that she just doesn't want to grow up, and and I'm like, well, then we need to talk about this stuff, right? Yeah. Um, so and and would and would she also? This is another question, and this is like some of these kids are talking about at school. Can they get hysterectomies? And they know that they don't want, you know, they're, they feel that they'll be old enough at 15 or 16 to make that decision, that they know they're not going to have children, because we have a lot of kids that are concerned about the environment right now. Mm-hmm. Would would they be allowed to have a hysterectomy? At age 15 or 16 or 14 or whatnot. No, I, I don't know that that's happening anywhere in the country, probably before like at least 18, 19, but probably even later than that. I, I think with waiting lists, it's probably later than that. Anything that could um, alter your ability to to um, have a reproduction capability down the road, um, which is a you know a big issue for us to think about. But um, no, surgery is not going to happen when, when, when your child's under 18. Okay, let's go to uh, another call now here. Marsha Bergen is in Vancouver Island. And uh, Marsha, we have only about three minutes left, but what's your question for Dr. Metzger? Okay, this is regarding a grandchild mm-hmm. who has been, um, lives in the lower mainland, has gone to a children's hospital, has been, has been on a puberty blocker since the age of 10, now 14. So I'd say four years, just about and would like to go on testosterone. That was not recommended, and I'm really concerned about bone structure. Um, and, and, and I heard that in the beginning of the program. Um, and I, I don't think the parents are very concerned or just don't want to talk about it. So, right, so your concern is, is bone development and, and wondering if testosterone ought to be uh, uh, given to this child, uh, right? Yeah, yeah, except I don't know. In a way, okay. I thought it was good advice not to do it, and, yep. and the person has to now see a psychiatrist, yeah. which I think is a good idea, but there's a long wait list. So, yeah. So, on, so, okay. so, yeah, so Dr. Metzger, and again, of course, Marsha, he, he can't speak uh, about the individual mm-hmm. case or the details of it, but again, Dr. Metzger, the issues raised by Marsha, what would you say? You, you brought up two really good issues. I did talk about the bone so at the beginning, and so when we have kids on blockers without second hormones for long periods of time, we are feeling a little bit more like we have to come up with a, a plan to protect the bones. Again, I don't know what's happening with your child, but of course, the next if that child or somebody, well, if the child is thinking about testosterone, then the plan is to go back to see a mental health professional who can do an assessment for that. And your biggest point that you just made is that everywhere in Canada, there is um, uh, 
we're under-resourced in mental health, not just for this, but for across the country for all issues. And um, and our public system is jammed in BC as it is everywhere. The private system is actually quite busy as well. Um, so um, I, I, you know, just sort of very generically, it sounds like your kid is um, going to go talk to somebody and see if testosterone is the right next move for them. Yeah, and that's uh, the caller's uh, grandchild that she she was talking about. And it has been a real pleasure to have you on the program. And uh, always like a, a doctor who comes in and talks about science and evidence. And uh, and that's exactly what you've done. Thank you very much. Oh, you're very welcome. Good afternoon. That was a portion of Cross Country Checkup's AMA about gender-affirming care with Dr. Daniel Metzger. He's a pediatric endocrinologist at BC's Children's Hospital, where he treats transgender patients. If you'd like to listen to yesterday's full two-hour edition of Cross Country Checkup, you can stream the podcast on the CBC Listen app. If you'd like to share comments or appear on a future show, go to cbc.ca slash aircheck. I'm Ian Hanamanson. Thanks for listening. The next live edition of Checkup airs on CBC Radio, CBC News Network, and CBC News Explore next Sunday. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.